Father, we have been encouraged through the praise of music. We have been drawn close to you, Lord, through the prayers of humble acknowledgement and adoration. And Father, now we have the opportunity to listen and to contemplate and to reflect upon your word. And we would ask that you, Holy Spirit, would have your way among us as we scatter the seeds of your words. We pray that you would plant these seeds in our hearts and minds, that we might understand what it means to know you, that we might understand what it is to truly be a person who is a Christian. We pray that, Father, even these baptisms today will help communicate more clearly what the gospel is all about as we celebrate our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm wondering how many of you have ever been, as I have been, faked out by artificial flowers. It's amazing the progress that they have made over the years in creating artificial flowers. I hate to break it to you, but these are not real. Uh, those are artificial flowers, and the way that they're making them now, they look so realistic. They go to great pains to uh, create the flower petals and the and the stems and the and the leaves. They look so real. Sometimes I've had to literally reach out and touch them, which is the dead giveaway. Uh, but I've been so faked out by how uh, incredibly real they look. But obviously, fake flowers have no scent unless somebody sprayed them with something fake and phony. Uh, they have they they never wilt. And let's be honest, they never, ever were vitally connected to a living organism. They have been created by somebody. They're imitation flowers. And uh, the stems, the blooms, the leaves, it's all there for show. They look beautiful, but they've never been alive. They have never been united to a real rose bush or a real... Uh, dahlia plant or whatever. Um, it, it's never really been connected to the actual plant. Now with that in mind, I want us to think this morning about a question that maybe confuses a lot of people. How do we tell a real Christian from an artificial Christian? What's the difference between a person who is religious and a person who is alive in Christ? In the first century, it's interesting how the early church leaders described other Christians in their writings to each other. And that's what much of the New Testament is, by the way. It was letters or epistles that are written from one Christian to another or to various groups of Christians in churches. And I'm going to look at Romans 16. If you have a Bible open to Romans 6 there with our scripture reading, you will just go a few more chapters beyond that. And I just want to show you how the Apostle Paul described in his terminology of a genuine Christian. He's going to name a bunch of his friends here, people who are his uh, fellow believers there, and he says in verse 7, he gives his greetings. Greet Andronicus and Junius. This is Romans 16, verse 7. My kinsmen and fellow prisoners who were in Christ Jesus before me. What he's saying there is, he's saying this is a fellow Jewish couple, and he says they've obviously spent time in jail, the same time I was in prison in jail at some point, and, but he's saying they became Christians before I became a Christian. 
Later in the same chapter, verse 9, he greets Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, he talks about people who are workers in the Lord. It's clear that it, for Paul, the Apostle Paul, and for other church leaders in the first century, to be in Christ was another name for being a Christian. As a matter of fact, Paul uses this term, in Christ, or something similar to that, in Him, or uh, in the Lord. He uses that phrase hundreds of times in his writings in the New Testament. And the phrase, in Christ, there, of course, is he's referring to other believers. And so we could say, then, a Christian is a person who is united to Jesus Christ by faith. Now, this concept of a believer's union with Christ is a fundamental, it is a uh, an essential core truth of the Christian faith. And I've given you a quote in your notes there, if you're following along in your bulletin, a quote by a theologian named John Murray. He's no longer alive, but uh, this is what he wrote. Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. Basically what he's saying there is, this is not just a tangential concept. This is a fundamentally core, uh, essential understanding of salvation. Now it is our privilege, as we've noted earlier, several people have acknowledged this is a Sunday where we have a baptism that will follow uh, our service today as part of our service. And we're going to witness this, and I want to take a few moments leading up to this, and I want to just walk us through several aspects of what it means to have and to be united to Jesus Christ. What it means to be a real Christian, a genuine Christian. And in what ways baptism signifies that union with Jesus Christ. So if you're following along your outline, our first point here is, what does it mean, union with Christ? I'm going to explain it. Union with Christ explained. Now, in order to avoid misunderstanding, we need to be very clear in what the phrase in Christ does not mean. It does not mean to be spatially into Christ. For example, the same way we talk about being in this building or in this room, this worship center. That's to be spatially in something. But when the writers of the New Testament used the phrase in Christ, they're referring to a very close, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the best way I know to illustrate that is to take Jesus' own words himself. And you want to keep your Bible open right there or put your finger in there and look back at the Gospel of John, chapter 15, page 1283 in your pew Bible. And listen to what Jesus, the way he explained the idea of having a relationship with him is like. He used an agricultural illustration, which is why I started off with fake flowers today. But he's talking about vines, grapevines. And he uses this metaphor, verse 4 of chapter 15 in John's gospel. Jesus says, abide in me, or remain in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, 
he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, Jesus, of course, is using comparative language here. He's using metaphorical language, and he's describing the Christian life not as merely living in the same proximity with Jesus Christ. He's not saying that the Christian life is merely having a casual acquaintance with Jesus Christ or having an informal affiliation somehow with Jesus Christ or other Christians. But that to be a Christian is to be in a vital, organic, organic, intimate relationship and union with Christ. The way I'm going to try to explain this a little more clearly is to use an illustration from a, a gentleman who probably was one of the greatest public speakers who's ever walked on American soil. His name is George Whitfield. He visited, uh, he's from England, he originally, and originally from England, came to the States a number of times, and when he preached and when he spoke, he spoke to thousands of people, and they literally, they weren't exaggerating, there was, it was tens of thousands of people would gather in large opening areas, and he was such an effective speaker and proclaimer of Christian truth, he's been called one of the greatest evangelists that's ever lived. This is before they had, obviously, amplified sound technology and things like that. But earlier in his life, before he became a great speaker and preacher, he was in college, which was fairly young back then. He's probably only 14 or 15 going to college. He went through a time in which his soul was rather disturbed within himself. His conscience was disturbed, and he assumed to himself, because of this coming under conviction, he knew that there were some areas of his life that were not the way they should be. And so he assumed that he needed to apply much more effort to become a person who was more religiously committed and more religiously reformed. He knew he needed to change some things about himself. And so he needed to get his act together, basically. That's what he concluded in his mind. But then he came under the influence of a writer who had composed a book that gave him understanding of this concept of what it means to be in Christ. And it changed everything about the way he was thinking about himself, about life. It was called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That was the book he was reading. And this book set forth the idea, which is a biblical idea, that just being around other Christians does not make you a Christian. Just being a person who goes to church or being a member of a church does not make you a Christian. Being a person who does good deeds or who does a a various acts of devotion or, or you're going to do selfless things for other people in need who are poor or downtrodden, that does not make you a Christian. Learning theology and studying all kinds of, of uh, finer points of biblical teaching does not make you a Christian. You may have raised your hand at some point in your life when you were invited to do so. You may have made a profession of faith at some point in your life. You may have been baptized at some point in your life. It does not necessarily make you a Christian. Because Whitfield read the following statement, and I think this is in your notes. You might want to follow along and look at what he read in The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Quote, True religion is a union of the soul with God. A real participation of the divine nature. The very image of God drawn upon the soul. 
Or in the Apostle Paul's phrase taken from Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Christ formed within you. The root of this divine life is faith, and its chief branches are love to God, charity to man, purity, and humility. What he's saying is that you see all the outside expressions of true faith. It starts, though, at the root of faith, faith in Jesus Christ being joined to him by faith. Within a year after George Whitfield read that book, God used that biblical message contained in it to impress upon him the truths that are found in other portions of the Word of God. One particular verse I want to draw to your attention. We'll get back to Romans here in a second, but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, page 1376 in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Now this verse does not say what many people sometimes assume. The verse does not say if any person be listed as a member of a church or if any person be listed as one who performs all the sacraments of the church, if any person is a generous donor to the church or is in fellowship with other Christians, he is a new creation. The Bible does not say that. Notice carefully what the scriptures say. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any, anyone, any man, any woman, any child is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You see, a believer is a person who has a close, personal, transformative relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this concept about being in Christ is so unique when compared to other religions of the world. It stands apart. No other religion teaches anything like it. For example, Buddhists do not claim to know Buddha. Muslims do not claim to know Muhammad. And Confucianists do not claim to know Confucius. But by faith... A Christian, in reliance upon the Word of God, is united to Jesus Christ. That's a fundamentally incredible reality that is so unique, and therefore that's why the Scripture says it does change us. It radically changes. It changes everything. A Christian enjoys the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ. A genuine believer has this close, vital, loving relationship with Christ, and there is this personal attitude of trust and deep communion with Jesus. It's not so much, the concern is not so much where you're located today. You're here, or you could be on one side. Apparently, a lot of people chose this side to sit on today. I don't know why, but you could be on this side, you could be on this side, you could be in the building or out of the building, that's really not what's so key matter in terms of spiritually speaking. What matters is whether or not your heart has been changed. The first step to truly knowing God is to admit that you have strayed away from his kingly rule in your life. That you have deliberately said, I want to be king, I'm not going to submit to you and I'm not going to make you king of my life and to go your own way, which we all have done. And so the gospel calls us today to admit that and to do an about face, a change of attitude. 
in which we reject our various attempts to try to complete ourselves or to improve ourselves by our own efforts, to somehow through our associations or through our accomplishments, through our trying to gain standing to become a person who is truly complete, acceptable before God. It's to just put that beside us, put that behind us, turn our back on that. Instead, rely fully, rely exclusively on Jesus Christ because he lived a perfect life. He lived a righteous life. He did everything God demanded and expected of him, a life that you will never live perfectly. It is Jesus who died in your place on the cross. We'll talk more about that in a minute. He was raised to, to a new life, and he alone can impart new life to you on the basis of grace. That is, it's a free gift it gives to you, not because you have somehow taken steps to make yourself worthy to accept it. No, it's admitting you don't, you aren't worthy, and therefore receiving it humbly and being overwhelmed by the grace and love of Christ. Let me just show you one more example of how this truth is made clear in the writers of the New Testament. I want to give you Paul, who at one time was a person who hated Jesus. And he was doing all he could to find himself to be complete and acceptable and, and a person who's gained the kind of respect from other people by trying to keep all the rules he possibly could keep. But there came a time when God humbled him, brought him down to his knees, stopped him in his tracks, confronted him with Jesus Christ personally, and finally realized that the person he was trying to oppose was the person who loved him and who had died for him. And if you look at Philippians chapter 3, Paul includes his testimony there in a way that is just absolutely marvelous. Page 1397 in your pew Bible, the bottom of the page, and Paul goes on to write here, I don't have time to completely unpack this, but he says in Philippians 3, at one time he was just so confident in himself, confident in his background, confident in his associations, confident in his ability to do whatever he needed to do, that he saw himself as being superior and supreme to all others in terms of being a law, a law keeper, a rule keeper. But he says in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, verse 7, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Why did Christ become so valuable to him? I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. Look at verse 9. And may be found where? in him. He wants to be, knowing that he is in Christ has now just changed his world. It has caused him to be a new creation. He has new desires, new approaches to life. He now is living for Jesus Christ in a way he says, I cannot tell you how excited I am to know Jesus Christ personally. Clearly, Paul went from being a religious person to being a person who was in Christ. And he said, that is the greatest treasure in all the world. That's what we're celebrating today, is the joy of the gospel that says, come and be a part. Join yourself to Jesus Christ by faith. I want us to think a little bit more clearly now this morning about the idea of what it means to be united to Christ, because I want us to think about the united to Christ being portrayed or illustrated or put on display. So our point number two in our outline is union with Christ portrayed. How many of you have gone to a wedding recently in the last number of years? 
Anybody? Okay. I don't know how many of you have had weddings where there have been people who have exchanged rings, but it's a very common practice in our culture that those who have exchanged vows in which they have promised and pledged in those vows their unending, exclusive union with each other. And so they take a wedding ring. By the way, this ring uh, has a date on it, 1903. Belonged to a relative of my uh, father-in-law, my wife's father, and his relative going back into Finland. We don't even know who this guy is. But uh, when we asked for a ring, is there one available? This was one that fit my finger, and I have been so thrilled to have it on my hand all these years. And it's a symbol. It's a symbol of a reality that cannot be fully uh, explained simply, but it at least represents the vows that I exchanged 1980 on that wonderful day. Now, but what symbol did the early church use to convey this wonderful concept of what it means to be in Christ, to be a true Christian, to be unified with Jesus Christ? And the answer, I believe, is water baptism. Water baptism is a symbol. It is a way of portraying this wonderful reality that the gospel talks about. And the pattern of the early church was this. The gospel would be proclaimed, the truth about who Jesus is, the call to people to acknowledge that they have sin and that they need to come on Jesus' terms and submit to him and turn from their sin and place their faith in him as an outward response to the gospel. Therefore, they are in that point joined to Christ in a transforming way. And then after that, they would have a public declaration of their union with Christ in the waters of baptism. Now, it's not the other way around. Some of you may have said, well, I was baptized early on in my life, and that joined me to Christ, therefore I've been in That's not taught in the Scriptures. I don't think you'll find that anywhere. You can look and look. I've looked and read. I don't see any indication of that in the Bible at all. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. They proclaim Jesus, they call people to repentance and faith, and then... Once they receive Christ by faith, they are then baptized. If you don't believe me, I'll just give you a verse to look up. Uh, if you look up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, listen, I've come to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Baptize, baptizing anyone does not make them a Christian. It is not the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed first, and then baptism is a testimony of the receiving of that gospel. Anyway, let's find our way now to Romans chapter 6, finally. And let's look at clearly how this portrays, baptism helps to portray or to illustrate what it means to be united to Christ. Stay with me here. hope you have your Bible open and notice here, page 1344 in your pew Bible, we're now at Romans chapter 6. The question is, if we receive by grace the free gift of eternal life, then should we just live like the devil? It doesn't make any difference how we live because Christ, God's grace is always greater than our sin. Paul says, no, absolutely not, verse 1. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in sin? He's arguing the fact that once you understand the gospel, once you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, therefore it makes a difference in how you live in, if you really understand what's happened to you and what Christ has done for you. And then he goes and talks about baptism. And he says here that when a sinner is joined to Jesus Christ by faith, he's been united to Christ. He shares in what Jesus has done for him. You see there, he reviews the principle there uh, that this baptism is pointing us to what Christ has done for us. 
Look at verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. You'll find there the word with. With Christ, repeated five times. With Christ, with Christ. Paul's reminding them that baptism is portraying this wonderful depiction of when we were joined to Christ by faith, we were joined to all that Christ did in his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And water baptism by immersion, I think, is a way of depicting these concepts very helpfully and effectively. Let's look on the one hand that water baptism visually illustrates the believer's death when he was joined to Christ. You see, Jesus died for sins once for all. And his death, he died, he died the death that we deserved. See, Jesus didn't do anything wrong. And the reason we, people die is because we have sinned. We've broken God's laws and the consequence of that is death. But Jesus died in order to take upon himself our sin. And because of our union with Christ, we share in his crucifixion in this sense, that when he died to sin, we died to sin as well if we are in Christ. Jesus' death on the cross revealed the horrendous consequences of sin because his atoning death communicated God's hatred, God's holy and utter revulsion of all of those expressions of defiance against his laws and his ways and his kingship. And when Jesus, in bearing the punishment we deserved, he absorbed all the consequences of our sins. And Jesus then also revealed to us, in doing that, he reveals to us the fact that God is righteous. God is just. God has a holy hatred of sin. That's communicated as we see what he, Jesus had to bear on the cross. But on the, at the same time, we also see in that same moments of Christ's death on the cross, for us, we see the love of God being revealed. We see the mercy and the grace of God being revealed in Christ. Jesus is not still paying for our sin. Notice the text there says in Romans, he did it once for all. Indeed, as we look at that, it's amazing to think that Jesus said while he was on the cross, it is finished. I've accomplished what I needed to do in suffering on this cross. And therefore, those who are united to Christ can now find assurance. And this is an amazing promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is the promise if we're joined to Christ by faith, that there is now, not someday down the road, there is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Now, for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No fear of having to suffer the judgment and wrath of God. You see, our guilt is removed if we're joined to Christ. Our shame is taken away. Our fears of ultimate rejection have been erased. And those who are united to Christ share in the benefits of his death on that cross. One of the wonderful texts of Scripture, I don't have time to fully unpack this either, but it came to my mind this week as I'm thinking 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul describes the fact that all of us, at one time, if you look at your life, you have to admit, all of us are unrighteous. That is, we are not people who are perfect, morally speaking. We have some serious moral faults. And Paul says that apart from Christ, apart from his bearing our sin upon himself on the tree, we would never, ever deserve to be a part of God's kingdom. 
we would be excluded from that kingdom. But everyone who repents of their sin and believes in Christ alone is promised full cleansing. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed. You were washed. That is, all of the stain of your sin is now removed in Christ. There's also the promise of full transfer to new ownership. You were sanctified. That is, you were taken from belonging to the, to the one who is the God of this world, and now you've put in, you belong and been set apart now into Christ. You belong to him. And you also have now reached the status of having full favor with God through Jesus Christ. That is, you were justified. You were declared right with God. This truth is so visibly and wonderfully portrayed in water baptism. You say, well, how is that? Well, the one who's being baptized is submerged into a water grave. Which signifies that what? They're identifying themselves as just as Jesus died, so I too have died with him to sin. And therefore, I have now able to claim the benefits of what Christ's death accomplished for me because I was right there joined to him in that death. So the benefits are what? We're cleansed from guilt. And that's why we encourage our people who are being baptized to wear white robes. It just reminds us they've been cleansed from their guilt. Not because of baptism, but because it's already been done when they were joined to Christ by faith. And therefore, they have a new status with Christ. They are declaring publicly, and they are declaring with great joy, the gospel promise that they are forever forgiven, and they are fully clothed with Jesus' righteousness. A believer's old identity is gone. Our old way of living is done with. Our old loyalties have come to an end. Because in the waters of baptism, they're confessing, Jesus is Lord, he is master of my life. I am now called to serve him joyfully thankfully, and with love in my heart. I have shared with uh, baptism candidates in their class, preparation class uh, in the past, an oath I, I, I came across, which um, all immigrants who go through the process of naturalization take an oath of citizenship. I don't know if you ever have said these words in such an oath or if you're aware that people do this, but they say this, quote, now you're coming from another country, and you're coming to live here as a citizen of this, of this nation, and you say this, I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen. What are they saying? They're saying my loyalties are no longer in what I may have had a loyalty to, previous to coming here, but now as I join this nation, my loyalty is to this particular country. And in baptism, a believer is confessing his or her own full and unreserved loyalty to Jesus Christ as King, as Master, as Lord of their life moving forward. It's a beautiful confession and one to celebrate the work of the gospel in their hearts. Now, the second thing I want to note here is not only are we identified with Christ's death in baptism as it portrays that, but it also portrays another spiritual reality. Those who are joined to Christ by faith, we are united to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. If you look at verse 4, for example, of Romans 6, as Jesus was raised from the death, raised from death to life, 
with power. So every believer united to Jesus by faith is raised to a new way of living. Now, I'm not saying that you're raised in such a way that you're a perfect person. Don't hear me saying that because that's not true. I am not a perfect person, and any Christian who claims to be is ignoring parts of the Bible that said, if you don't got no problems or struggles with sin, even as a Christian, you're lying. You're not telling the real truth. So, so don't, under, don't misunderstand us. But what it means is that there's a new way of living going on in which we're not the same people we used to be. There's some changes. Rather than living for ourselves and for our own glory exclusively, now as a believer, we're progressively more and more living our life out of our new identity, out of our new nature, that a believer has a new purpose for living. We know the purpose is to glorify, make much of God, not much of ourselves. A believer has a new nature. The power to live a new life is now helping us on the inside as the Holy Spirit takes up his residence in each believer's heart. The power of sin is broken. That means we no longer have to live the way we used to live when sin was our master, forcing us to constantly do things wrong again and again and again. But now we are alive in Christ. We have new passions, a new principle of life within us. And what has happened with a Christian is we have a new, the new life is Christ. <laughs> Jesus imparts to us eternal life, which is not just life that goes on and on and on, but eternal life as Jesus defined it in John 17. He says, eternal life is knowing God, knowing the Father, knowing the one who he has sent. It's really knowing them in a relational way. Therefore, we are enjoying a new life, a life that is found in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6 in Romans. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Living with Christ. That's what a Christian is. A person who, while in this earth lives with Christ. Everything he does, everything that goes on, everything she does, it's done with Christ. In eternity, as we move beyond this world to the new heavens and new earth, we will live with Christ. And water baptism merely visually portrays many of these wonders of the gospel. And baptism is merely a temporal sign. It's pointing us to all this myriad of blessings to be found in Christ, provided to the person who truly, humbly, honestly admits their need for a savior and then begins to say i acknowledge that what i've done is wrong i acknowledge that how i've handled myself how i've related to you god i have failed in many ways i desperately need to be joined to you and take part in what christ has done for me in his death in his resurrection it's to be done by faith let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for how the Word of God points us to Jesus Christ. We thank you that Christ is the only source of life. It is Christ who came not to bring condemnation. He came to rescue. He came to save. He came to provide a, a way of escape to us, all of us who have gone astray, all of us who desperately need help who need a new heart. How we thank you, Lord, for the wondrous joy it is to celebrate the uniqueness of what it means to have eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
I pray for those who are here today, Lord, that some of these things may be new somewhat, or maybe can still uh, rather uh, difficult for them to understand. I pray, Lord, that you would put them into a place where they would begin to seek out the answers to what it means to know you, what it means to know full forgiveness, what it means to have a new creation made in their hearts, and what it means to have new life in Christ. Lord, we thank you that when we are united to Christ, we know that sins have been blotted out, that guilt is canceled, the curse is averted, that we are reconciled to you, our God. We thank you, Lord, that in virtue of our union with Christ, we know that your grace becomes ours, grace that will strengthen us and sustain us, that your Holy Spirit becomes ours to guide us, enlighten us, and comfort us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts to Christ today, we might be thrilled with him, that we might find our life in him, and then we might find great joy with those who similarly today are making this their profession today, that they are in Christ. We ask that you be glorified in all these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.